You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. I'm taking a different approach to this episode as we dive into the true offseason now because the month of October sucks when you're not involved in the postseason. It really does. Yeah, when you're not in the playoffs. Yeah, it's awful. And, you know, we don't have anything else to talk about, right? I mean, you're boring. I don't have anything else to ask you about on this show. Well, uh, thanks, first of all. But second of all, uh, yeah, you know, we've heard you talk about the same things over and over and over again. Right. So and nauseum. And you so know, you're, you're the Department of Redundancy Department, and I'm just a guy. <laughs> so where, where are we here? Right. So we're going we're gonna to switch gears now. As we dive into the postseason, we have two guests on this episode today. We're going to take a very, very close look at pitching, pitching development, what the White Sox could do with pitching. We're going to dive into all the options that they have with their staff and their bullpen and what they should do because we know what they should do. Like we're, we're going to get into what they should do. And then the question becomes, what will they do as we sit around and wait for the first few dominoes to fall? Well, that's the thing we won't know until they actually do it. Right. But we know what they, this is where I'm worried is, is that every off season, since you and I have been doing this show anyway, and every off season that I've been a White Sox fan, there's always a, well, here's what they should do. And then they go and do something completely different. So I don't know. Do you think Chris Getz is any different? Here's what I'm going to tell you you should do. You should go to Cork and Carry in Beverly and hang out in the fall. You should be over at Cork and Carry at the park, even in the offseason, for the award-winning menu of burgers and ballpark favorites, the two-for-one burgers when you dine in on Mondays. You should make plans to be at 33rd and Princeton in the shadow of the ballpark, pregame, postgame, in-game, when the season returns. Right now, as always, they have the extensive bar with rotation of craft beers, familiar favorites, spirits, and wines. See everything they have to offer. The home base of Socks in the Basement, the official podcast of Cork and Carry at the park. See more at corkandcarry.com. Okay, so first things first uh, today, we have a, a guest on the line we've never had on before, uh, wrote an article on sportsmockery.com about the idea of bringing back Lucas Giolito uh, as one of those free agent pitchers that are out there floating in the uh, in the ether, and there's a lot of them out there this year. This is a big year for going out and getting arms. I think the White Sox need to invest in a couple of them. Uh, you start building now for 2025. Mitchell Kaminsky is on the phone. How are you? Hey, good. Good to be here. It's early in the morning. Who needs coffee when you got White Sox baseball to talk about? I'm fired up. Um, (laughs) I love that you're fired up because we have we have finished off the 2023 season. Offseason moves are going to begin. And I, I liked your article. It's a thought that I've had myself. You look at what Giolito did for the Sox just in this past season and compare his numbers for the Sox. Before he goes off on two other teams, like I don't know if every White Sox fan understands this. He's not only with the Angels later in the year, but he's with he's with the Guardians later in the year and both stops just atrocious numbers. And so I wonder is is the feeling is your feeling that if he doesn't have Ethan Katz with him, Lucas Giolito is not a good pitcher. So he has to come back to the White Sox. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I don't know if I'd go as far as to say without Ethan Katz, because he was a top prospect 
before, I mean, I guess high school days, though, he got to that point. But the, the, my, my, my point was, and you alluded to it earlier, because there are so many pitchers available this offseason, it wouldn't be like years past where, like, he might get someone desperate for an arm is going to overpay for a Lucas Giolito. Because this year, there's a lot. Jim Bowden had an article in The Athletic with his top 40 free agents, and I, th- I believe it was like 24 of them were all pitchers. So um, because it's so deep, he's not going to get paid like I think he wants to get paid. And he was with two organizations last year, and the Guardians are a team historically known for being able to develop pitchers and be good at revitalizing careers. And he was even that that was his worst of the three the three stops. So I feel like he's going to be looking for a team with a solid pitching coach to try and revitalize that his career, re- rebuild his stock on, on a shorter deal. And I mean the numbers speak for itself. He kind of does. It, need Ethan Cass. I feel like they're comfortable together. It would help, you know, build his stock back up. And I also think it would be beneficial for the White Sox in some aspects as well. You know, I look at his relationship with Cats, and if you think about it, here's a guy who, he he had some bad years early on with the Sox, and then Cats comes along, and you get that story about how he has him throwing like the heavier thing instead of a ball. He's throwing like a basically a weight to fix the way that he's releasing the ball, and then all of a sudden Giolito comes out and has a really nice season, and and it just seems like his career took a little bit of a turn, took a little bit of a a bump, and look at where he's at with the Sox. Just in a couple of simple stats, his WHIP a one point two two, his fielding independent pitching a four point four three, and then he goes to the Angels and the whip jumps to almost one and a half. It's actually one and a half with Cleveland. The fielding independent pitching is right below seven. Like he he just completely falls off. And so I've kind of bought into the idea of he, he's got like a like a whisperer. There's a Lucas Giolito whisperer and it happens to be Ethan Katz. My issue, though, is. I don't think Pedro Grafal is going to be the manager of this team long term. And I think when they eventually replace him, the new guy is going to want his own pitching coach. So you sign Giolito to a long term deal. What happens when he loses his Giolito whisperer? Is that a concern for you? No, and I because I don't think he would sign a long term deal because I think he wants to get paid. And whatever he's going to get in a long term deal, I don't think it's going to be the number he's looking for or he thinks he is worth. So that's why I see him signing more of like a two-year deal with like an option after the first year just to try and get that value back up. And what a better spot to do it than go back to the Lucas Giolito Whisperer and Ethan Katz uh, on a short-term deal. And I think it would be as I, I think it would be in a Sox best interest as well because if you look at that rotation heading into next year, a lot of question marks. I mean, the only two starters probably Cam Penslin right now are Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech. Kopech can't make it past the fifth inning. And, and Dylan Cease, quite frankly, he struggles to go deep into games, too. Now, he did throw, uh, I believe it was like 180 innings last year. So it was a little bit better. But if those are your only two guys, like th- that bullpen is going to get taxed and it's going to get taxed pretty early in the season, especially if you're filling out the rest of the rotation with guys like Garrett Crochet. Well, he's coming off some arm issues. He's never been a starter before. You don't know how many innings you're going to be getting out of him. If you call it up like a Jake Eater later in the year, you're also probably easing him in. So that's a lot of innings for the bullpen to cover. So I do think they need uh, someone that's going to be able to eat in. So it'd be beneficial for Giolito. We reboost his value on a short-term deal. Be beneficial for the White Sox. You get a guy that can eat innings. And I think it'll be a low-pressure environment because I don't think either of us thinks they're going to be contenders next season, barring it like some shocking moves this offseason. So low-pressure environment with a pitching coach he's comfortable with. 
he's able to eat some innings for the Sox. And then maybe, you know, if he boosts his value around the deadline, maybe he can try and flip him, flip him again. So I feel like it, uh, it would work out for, for both parties. Yeah, I think the only thing that interests me is whether or not the team wants anybody back that they've already moved on from. You know, I don't know what he's like in the locker room. I have absolutely no idea. But it seems like there's this we need to change the culture thing. And so it'd be surprising to me to bring back somebody who was already part of the team. Like, I would think they only want fresh names. They only want new blood. They want to change something in there so they don't want anybody coming back in there that that was part of the last couple of years. I I mean, I don't know. I I don't know what your feeling is on it, but, but my feeling is, like, I think he's a good pitcher. I thought that at the deadline, they should have extended him and they should have been looking to shop cease because he's got Boros as his agent, and I'm looking long-term because I knew you weren't winning anything in 23, and I know you're not winning anything in 24, but I see all that payroll flexibility in 25, and I say, wait a minute, we can get back to this really quickly. So, you know, it is surprising to me that they moved on. It would You would almost need Chris Getz to be a guy who disagreed with his his trade and wants him back personally and felt like they made a mistake, the uh, the former regime, right? That is a very fair point, and it's the same reason I argued in another article that you should trade away Eloy Jimenez, even though I still think he's a very capable hitter, um, but I think it's time for a change of scenery. You want to get rid of as many guys from that old regime that were creating, and it's such an overused word now with, with culture. However, I think also where there's smoke, there's fire, and you could tell who the some of the problems were because you constantly heard their names pop up in reports, whether it be Yohan Moncada or Eloy Jimenez or Yosemite Grandal popped up a couple of times. You never once heard anything about Lucas Giolito. So I wouldn't be too concerned about that. I mean, just judging like, all, what, what, what he says um, in his interviews and whatnot, some of his, I mean, he seems like a good guy. It seems like his teammates like him. And as far as pitchers go, and I think that was one of their issues, like, it's hard when like the leaders in the locker room are like only your starting pitchers. Cause I, cause they're only throwing once every five days. So I don't think he would have as, it wouldn't be as big of a deal as like, uh, you would bring back like a Yasmani Brandal who's like an everyday player because he's only put. So I think the effect on the locker room was minimized because of the fact that he's a starter. And also I don't think he was part of the problem. So that's why I wouldn't be as worried if they brought him back. But I, I do agree. It is, it is a, a fair point and guests might want to do his own thing. Now, you know, try and separate himself from, from that old regime. Mitchell Kaminsky writes articles over at uh, Sports Mockery. He also pops up on podcast, right? Aren't you on a podcast or two? Yes, I am. The uh, Pinwheels and Ivy podcast Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock uh, with uh, Matt Zawoski, Aldo Soto, and the Reverend Kay Fid. Do we, we do a little Cubs talk, we do a little Sox talk, and uh, there's a lot of nonsense in between. <laughs> <laughs> you always need a little bit of nonsense. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>As the weather got cold, if you were trying to get those storm windows in and get the screens out, there's a better way to do it. Maybe it's time for new exterior windows, door, patio door, storm door, whatever you need to replace. Go to Window and Door Superstore of Oak Forest. Instead of having some window salesman walk into your home and tell you what you need, go and see them today. See everything, full example, glass designs on display, no pictures in a book. The owners are in showroom and on site. And all window and door superstore installers, they do not farm out the work. 40 years they've been doing it this way in Oak Forest since 1985 with all major brands custom made, no stock items. That's how they get a perfect fit. 
half block east of 159th and Ridgeland. See Window and Door Superstore of Oak Forest at 6280 159th Street and learn more at windowdooroakforest.com. So our first guest on the show, and there will be another one to get into Brian Bannister and, and talk a lot about what he brings to the table, probably more than you actually know. Uh, there's some very interesting stuff with him. But our first guest did talk about the idea of bringing back Lucas Giolito. Again, I'm not sure if you bring back a guy who you've already had walk out of your clubhouse when you had so many clubhouse issues. And again, I don't know if Lucas Giolito was any kind of problem whatsoever in there, but you would just think that this new regime wants different names in there, right, Ed? Well, that's one thing is, is that, you know, you're trying to turn over the culture. You're trying to create a different vibe, a different team. The other part of it is, is, you know, you, you also have to look at Lucas Giolito and just sit there and say, okay, what's his actual value? And in walking back into the White Sox, does he feel like he's got a higher value here than he might with other teams where other teams are going to evaluate him on how he finished last year versus, you know, where the White Sox may have a different viewpoint or he may expect them to have a different viewpoint because he was the quote unquote staff ace at one point. So I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's partially just that you want different voices, different arms, different. You want a different look than what you've had. And so I don't know that you, you go and do that. But I do think that they do need to, to, to pick up pitching this offseason. I think it needs I think the rotation needs to be addressed with a few guys this year and let the young guys deal, you know, try and fill in. I have one guy that I consider to be a part of the five man rotation, and that's Dylan Cease. Because I don't expect Mike Clevenger to pick up his option. If he does, that's a gift to us, but I don't see him doing it. And Michael Kopech has done nothing to show me that he could be a consistent pitcher in, in the rotation. And I still contend that on a team trying to win a championship, Michael Kopech is in their bullpen more likely than in their rotation. And I think that's what he will eventually be, even if this team stubbornly sticks him into the rotation for one more year. All the other names that are internal. Whether it's Nick Nostrini and Jake Eater, or it's Jesse Schultens, or Garrett Crochet, or even Kopech, all of the other names, all the internal names in the system right now should be fighting for the back end of the rotation. Two spots, maybe, because you can't sign more than, than two guys probably in the offseason to your starting rotation. Cease, two free agent signings, and then the big mess of arms that you don't know what they are, what they're going to be, can they turn it around, whatever. They all compete for the other two spots. That's what I want to see. Looking at free agency, Eduardo Rodriguez is out there. Lucas Giolito, as we talked about. Michael Lorenzen's out there. Uh, there you could still go knock on the door of an Alex Wood or a Sean Manea or a, a Jack Flaherty or a Luis Severino, I think is a intriguing name. You could swing high for Aaron Nola and just say, look, this is this is a guy that we expect to anchor. Wouldn't that be the guy that you say, we're going to go get him and swing high? I think as Sox fans, we're just we're predisposed to the idea that we're not going to get those high-end starting pitchers because they're going to require a lot of money and a lot of years, and Jerry Reinsdorf won't do that, right? I mean, would you swing at Trevor Bauer? Right. Now that you know that Trevor Bauer, it wasn't the bad guy, at least based upon all of the evidence that's come out ever since this whole thing ended. You know, even even though you're not going to compete in 24, I would I would absolutely give Trevor Bauer a contract if he wants it because he is the guy. You want to talk about picking up Tim Anderson's option and then turning around and, and seeing if he's got trade value because you're not going to compete and you're not going to bring him back in 25? That's Trevor Bauer for me. 
let him pitch a couple of months on the south side. And if he likes it here and everybody's happy with him and if he is good in the clubhouse and everything and wants to be extended, you can talk about extending him. But in all likelihood, he's a guy that that he's going to be a rental and he might bring you back someone. Right. I like Frankie Montas out there. There's a guy that, you know, he basically had to sit out a season because he was injured, probably doesn't have high value. That's somebody should be within your price range that you can grab for a couple of years, too. I like I, I like the idea of Jack Flaherty. I, I like the idea of letting him have one year of no pressure to to rebuild his arm strength and rebuild what he was with the Cardinals and then be ready to roll in 25. I do like him. Worst thing that happens, he's fourth or fifth in your, in your rotation still, right? He's an innings eater. Right. Even if he ends up being the bottom of your rotation, he's still bottom of the rotation eating up innings, and you're going to pay him at that rate right now based upon what he's coming off of. But he has the potential to become something so much better. Frankie Montas is the same kind of thing. Luis Severino, man, did he? does he look like a guy that doesn't have it anymore? Well, what is your major league scouting? What are these guys that you're bringing in from outside of the organization? What does Brian Bannister think of a guy like Luis Severino? Because he's taken guys before that are towards the end of their career and all of a sudden turned them right back up again and gotten them back on track. Who is he identified that's sitting out there that you can go sign right now at a value and then have long-term in your rotation? If that's why you brought Brian Bannister in, okay, is because he's the guy that's going to help a team that doesn't necessarily go for the Aaron Nolas who are going to be sort of the givens and you're looking for guys that you can, you can fix, guys that you can turn around, guys that you can get back to the top then that is going to be a big test this offseason and even in the next offseason for for what Bannister brings to the plate because otherwise we're just kind of looking at, well, how quickly can they develop the minor league guys? How quickly can they develop the young guys? And the guy charged with that is Paul Janish, who is basically Chris Getz, except he played for the Reds instead of the White Sox and Royals. Uh, so how much do you trust a former middle infielder to develop your pitchers in the minor leagues. And we don't know what Janish is or not. I, I don't really have a, an opinion one way or the other on the guy. But Bannister, if that's what you brought him in for, this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is the guy that needs to make good on his contract to show us that he can bring in somebody else's leftovers and turn them into a gourmet meal. All right, two guys we're going to talk to right now. One of them is going to tell you why Brian Bannister could have a massive impact on the White Sox now and in the future when it comes to their pitching staff. The other one is our good friend Butch Zemar from Elite Benefits of America. Are you interested in any way in the White Sox offseason or are you just inundated with things that you have to do when it comes to health insurance? Inundated. Yeah. Uh, it's that time of the year. It's busy um, and it's almost like the, the doors are busting off. You getting some sleep? Uh, a little bit here and there. And you help businesses, small and big, get the best out of their insurance plans for their employees. Because if you think about it, it's not just the employee paying a premium and the company kind of covering it. The company gets affected by the bottom line as well. It's all about keeping people that you want around your workplace working for you because they're happy with the benefits, right? 100%. And employees are leaving companies uh, for better benefits and uh, strategizing and making sure that you're doing the best, not only for your bottom line as the company, um, whether you're the CFO or the owner, uh, or to retain that employee because that's talent, that's profit, that's money sitting on the table. Um, and so making sure you put it together right. So if somebody wants to look in the possibility of reducing cost and probably getting better insurance for their own employees and making them happier, how do they do that? Call 708-535-3006. 
uh, or you can email me at butch at elitebenefits.net. All right, we're going to stay on the pitching uh, aspect of things in this episode. Steve Paradzinski from ONTAP Sportsnet is joining me right now on the line. How are you, Steve? Hey, Chris, I'm doing well. How are you, man? Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. Uh, you are very excited about the Bannister hire the guy who's going to be overseeing all of the pitching in the White Sox organization. And uh, I read this article it just put up on ONTAP Sportsnet, and I, I I immediately was struck by this idea that a book comes out that talks about a new way of, of building players and getting the most out of them and pitching and all these other things, and they devoted a chapter to Brian Bannister. Like It looked to me like you were like, this is the guy we probably should have had around here a couple of years ago, but at least we finally got him now. Well, it's funny you say that because the MVP machine, the book itself actually came out in 2019. So kind of at the tail end of the last rebuild cycle when they were supposed to be kicking down the door and entering into that contention phase. And obviously, as we all know, Don Cooper was pitching coach at the time and reading that book back then, Bannister was a guy that I highlighted and identified and was hopeful that maybe he would be the next pitching coach for for this team. And he's kind of bounced around a little bit in developmental roles with the Red Sox, then going over to the San Francisco Giants, and now ultimately back here to the Sox. And this is a guy that is just very forward-thinking, progressive in terms of his use of data and technology and analyzing all the necessary modern tools that are out there to try to maximize and optimize pitcher performance within his staff and that's something that we haven't seen here at the corner of 35th and Shields for quite a while and that's really what has me particularly excited. Break down a little bit for anybody who didn't read it the MVP machine and and the connection to Brian Bannister who does have a chapter about him this isn't just like analytics right this is more of using different data and and different methods to kind of bring it all together and maximize what what guys are able to do on the field correct? Yeah absolutely so there's two guys that really highlight in the chapter um, devoted to Bannister and the MVP machine. And one of them was a teammate of Bannister's during his time with the Kansas City Royals, Zach Granke, former Cy Young Award winner. And then another one was Rich Hill, career journeyman that was kind of at the end of his um, professional life cycle, so to speak, and had a little bit of a crossroads. And Bannister looked at a lot of data, looked at pitch sequencing, um, you know, pitch usage, and tried to help both of these guys find different ways to be better than what they were in their current iterations. And utilizing a lot of the data, looking at different tools and technology, again, he was able to play at least a small role in some capacity in helping both of those guys to rejuvenate and revitalize their careers. And I mean, Rich Hill is still going here at the age of 42. Zach Granke became a Cy Young award winner and was a very successful pitcher for a long time, still pitching to this day himself. So um, it's kind of those ideas and, and looking at the individual pitcher, what they do, what their strengths are, and then how to capitalize on those strengths and minimize those weaknesses. And that's really something that Bannister talked about directly in the book, that it's not a cookie cutter approach that every pitcher is going to be different. And in a developmental role, like what he's going to be in here now with the Sox, that's going to be very important. I found it really interesting. You listed the, the giants, the organization that he comes from and some of their stats since the beginning of the 2020 season, when, when Brian Bannister gets in there and gets to kind of like push his philosophy uh, into what they're doing. And they're first in fielding independent pitching since the beginning of 2020 and second in walks per nine innings. And that stands out to me so much because it, it looks to me like one 
pitch selection and how you were attacking the batter. But secondly, it didn't matter what the defense was with that fielding independent pitching. They were very effective pitchers. Does a lot of that just come from the pitching coach or is it going to be important for him to also have catchers that can call a proper game and the support of his manager is so that when they're in game, they're following his philosophy. It's really a collection of different things there. It is understanding again, kind of the strengths and weaknesses of the individual pitchers. Like you said, having those catchers that understand how to call a game effectively for that particular pitcher, what their best sequences are. Um, and from a pitch utilization standpoint, what is going to make the most sense? And, you know, one of the other concepts really harped on in, in the chapter is, and Banisher kind of labels himself as what he calls the conduit, and that's being able to relay information from the front office on the analytical side and, and the data analyst side to the dugout, to the players themselves, and to the coaching staff there, and being able to articulate things in a clear, concise manner that's going to make the most sense for the players to then be able to apply that information on the field there when the game is happening. And that's really important. Um, And your point there about the walks and the fielder independent pitching, that's something I wrote about early in the season for the Sox. This pitching staff has been getting killed for the last two seasons because of the free passes that they have been issuing. And that is going to be one of the quickest ways for this pitching staff to turn around and become more successful and ultimately put this team in a better position is by limiting the number of free passes and extra base runners that they are giving out on an inning-by-inning basis. How significant did you think it was that Matt Wise gets brought in as the new bullpen coach? Because he has experience being a pitching coach, and you don't see that all the time in the bullpen coach, you know, you have a guy now in Brian Bannister that's overlooking the the pitching staff. And right away, he's like, we need to add another brain in there. We need to find another person that's out there in the bullpen that's actually uh, got a little bit more experience when it comes to pitchers. I think that that is going to be very useful. I know a lot of people poked fun at bringing in a guy from the Angels, an organization that um, has been extremely mediocre, much like the White Sox have for much of the last decade here. But to your point there, why is having that experience serving as a pitching coach, I think is going to provide some utility in the sense that, again, just being able to take and look at information from different sources, articulate it to players, do so in real time, which is going to be pretty useful for relievers as they are getting ready for their individual assignments, understanding who it is they're going to have to be going out there and attacking when they are coming into games in different leverage situations there. So I don't see how that is a downside to it. Again, people want to poke fun at at the Angels' connection there, and rightfully so. They've earned that distinction at this point. But to me, there's just not a downside to that. All right, Steve Parazinski writes for ONTAP Sportsnet. Uh, he seems to be uh, excited about the idea that uh, Brian Bannister is a, is a part of things. And I, I am too, Steve. I mean, let's be honest. And we were talking right before we, you know, we turned on the microphones here. And, uh, and I, w- I was laughing to you. Like, I don't know what Chris Getz is. He wasn't who I wanted to be, the general manager of the White Sox. But I'm holding on to that sliver of hope that somehow he was just a guy who was stuck in a front office surrounded by morons who now is like, now we got to bring in a bunch of people that aren't from this White Sox organization because the people in here don't know what they're doing. Like, I'm I'm hoping for that. And every time I see these outside hires, it at least feeds that hope. You're 100% spot on in that assessment. I, too, was not thrilled with the fact that it was just another insular promotion within a White Sox organization that, frankly, 
doesn't have anybody really internally that deserves to move up in rank and title there. Um, it was just, in my opinion, more laziness from Jerry Reinsdorf. But hopefully Chris Getz has a different, unique vision. And, you know, the idea of bringing in guys like Brian Bannister, like Josh Barfield from the Arizona Diamondbacks, guys that have had success in their specific fields with other organizations that have in turn had areas of success. I mean, look, the Arizona Diamondbacks were just in the World Series with a lot of prospects and a farm system that was largely built by Josh Barfield. So hopefully these guys can take some of these principles and some of these concepts that they have instilled in other organizations that have led to success and revamp things here at the corner of 35th and Shields because, my God, is it desperately in need of it right now. <laughs> Steve Parazinski writes for OnTap Sportsnet. You can see the entire article right there. Thank you so much, my friend, for coming on Sacks in the Basement. Appreciate it, Chris. Great to talk to you as always. <laughs> That music means only one thing. The Sox nerd, Dave Marin, a guy who comes up with every little tidbit and trivia piece that you could ever think of and throws it up on the big board over at The Rate, also joins us here on Sox in the Basement each and every week. And he's brought to you by the Village of Lamont. Want to experience a downtown with real history, great eats and drinks, and green spaces filled with adventure? Visit the Village of Lamont. Shop, dine, drink, explore, and see everything they have to offer this weekend and beyond at LamontDowntown.com. Nerd, how are you? Fantastic, Chris. How are you? Man, I am just happy that the World Series is over and we're going to start to see some movement. And uh, I am trying very, very hard not to be nervous about what the White Sox are going to do. I'm going to, I'm just going to sit back, I'm going to watch, I'm going to analyze, and then I'm sure at some point I'm going to criticize. What do you have for me today? (laughs) Chris, let's keep going with our sometimes off-the-wall alphabetical review of the 2023 White Sox. We left off at Lucas Giolito, so let's resume with Rami Gonzalez. The middle infielder was a middle-of-the-game kind of guy in 2023. In innings four through six, Gonzalez slashed 387, 406, and 742. That meant in every other inning in 2023, Gonzalez slashed 098, 111, and 197. In the last 50 seasons, Gonzalez's 2023 average in the middle three innings ranked sixth in team history. Next, Yasmani Grandal. If it is the end for Yaz and the White Sox, he departs as the franchise's all-time leader among switch-hitting catchers with 44 home runs. In fact, he hit 14 more homers than all the other seven switch-hitting catchers in Sox history. In addition, Grandal owns the top three and four of the top six homers by Sox switch-hitting catchers. How about the departed Billy Hamilton? The speedster finished his Sox career 11 for 11 on steals, which are the most steals in Sox history without getting caught. One of the more popular Sox players in recent memory, Hamilton was 9 for 9 in 2021 and 2 for 2 in 2023 on steals. Moving on to Liam Hendricks, a cancer survivor, Hendricks was named the Comeback Player of the Year on Thursday. He joins Jim Tomey, Paul Konerko, Bo Jackson, and Eric Soderholm as Sox players to win this award. And before I get to my zinger, I remind you that all of these gems and others on players like Graveman, Hazley, and Honeywell, who did not make the podcast cut, are on my blog, which you can link to at SocksInTheBasement.com. My zinger, Chris, I have an answer for the question we posed last week. I said I was picking the Diamondbacks in the World Series, which was a fail, because they were the last team defeated by the 2023 White Sox. 
We then wondered, when was the last time the Sox posted their final win of the season against the future World Series champions? Well, I found out, and this is one of my favorite games in Sox history. The year was 1973, and the Sox finished the season in Oakland against the A's, who would go on to win the second of their three consecutive titles. The Sox defeated the A's 1-0 in Oakland in the regular season finale in what was Steve Stone's best game with the team. Stone struck out a career-best 12 in nine-plus dominating innings and limited the A's to three hits in outdueling the great Catfish Hunter. At one point, Stoney retired 24 in a row, which took him to the ninth of the scoreless duel. The Sox got Stone a run in the 10th on a Bucky Dent bases loaded walk. That's it, Chris. More than you wanted to know about the middle innings, switch hitting catchers, and Steve Stone masterpieces. Even in 1973, that's such a White Sox win, isn't it? In a meaningless game, they walk off because Bucky Dent draws a walk. (laughs) (laughs) How about it? So White Sox, it's incredible. Thanks, nerd. Great talking to you. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always on SocksInTheBasement.com.